I, I really enjoy building companies. It's it's sort of a thing that I'm I'm deeply interested in. Probably the best description of me is is sort of a a company building version of a serial monogamist. The Architects of Business on Joe is supported by the EY Entrepreneur of the Year program, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland. Most of us would love to have just one multi-million euro idea, but for a select few, one just isn't enough. This is The Architects of Business, Joe's weekly series of interviews with leading entrepreneurs, hearing about their insatiable appetites for success. Today, I'm speaking to Dylan Collins, a chap who's gone from county tip to the top of the tech sector. It was only when we actually sold the company in 2007 that my mother was proud enough to tell people in the village what her son actually did. Because mm. up until that point, video games were considered still quite embarrassing. Having made his impact in computer gaming with Demonware and Jolt Online, now he's creating a technology that's making the internet safer for kids. It was a small audience that was considered really difficult to do something about. And I really, really like that as a potential opportunity. Because difficult, hard sectors means you're going to have less competition. Today we'll hear his views about what it takes to stand out in the startup scene. It's a thing that I think was probably born on the hurling pitch in Mulnahone, where it's just get back up and keep going. So, Dylan Collins, thank you very much for uh, for talking to us. Um, you're a tip man, is that right? I'm a South Tipperary man, yes. The hurling stronghold of Mulnahone is where I was raised. And you draw a strong distinction there between the South and the North. I do, I do. Uh, I think the line is, is uh, sort of... North Tipperary for culture, South Tipperary for agriculture. Or right. Might have, might have been the, the other way around, but there's definitely some distinction there. Yeah. They're together now, though, aren't they? I, I, I think now, yeah. But, I mean, it's important not to forget your history. Yeah, it's like Korea, really. Uh, not, not so much. But, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't want to sort of suggest who the North Korea or the Kim, Kim Jong might be. Yeah, some things are, uh, are best uh, left unsaid, <laughs> I think. Um, I still know a few of those politicians. <laughs> I bet, I bet. Uh, so, I mean, talking about role models, politicians or business people that you saw around you when growing up. Um, were there any kind of entrepreneurial role models around you that you remember in, in, in Mullinahone? Growing up? Yeah. Um, in Mullinahone, wow. Um, I think it was probably more the, the, the hurling coaches and the football coaches um, that were really sort of the, the first role models. Um, so it would have been probably the, the John Lahys and, and people like that, you know, who would have, who would have been kind of leaders on, on the tip team who came out of Mullinahone and sort of I was only thinking about this recently like sort of you know the the, the actual impression and the impact that, that that team sports can have when you're young you know so is this just about working hard and being diligent or? I think just just understanding what leadership is right and 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 you know the difference between why you want to sort of follow someone and, and emulate what they do versus someone else who you don't necessarily want to I think when you're playing you know under 10 hurling and under 12 hurling and under 14 hurling you start to understand that there is such a thing as leadership um, and you understand that people follow it. And I think you, you, you start to look at that pattern and look for that pattern as you get older. Did you think you were going to end up in business at that stage? No, I was. I had my heart set as an eight-year-old on being a paleontologist. I was deeply, deeply, and, and still to this day, frankly, interested in dinosaurs and very, very old things. Um, there was not a huge call for paleontologists in the village of Mulnahone. I wouldn't I have thought up. so. No, no, yeah. no. I wondered, I mean, did you take your lead from that in Ross Geller? <laughs> it was just purely from playing dinosaurs and watching Jurassic Park. It, it was it was pre friends. Um, it was uh, yeah no. It was just reading about dinosaurs and, and being you know as I think I still am now you know really a very deep nerd 
um, in terms of being interested in history and science and, and things that have happened in the past. And also dinosaurs are just cool. And when you get older, it becomes cool to be a nerd. I, I know it's amazing. Like there was a certain point where you, you just kind of wait and wait and wait. And then eventually you get to a certain point and the girls go, oh, we really like you now. It's the ugly duckling syndrome. It, 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 I think it, that it happened with Ross Geller as well. Anyway, but then you went to Trinity, isn't that right? That's right. I went to Trinity College, uh, studied business and politics, didn't spend an inordinate amount of time really in any of those lectures, although I did one or two, um, but spent a lot of time in the computer science department. Okay. Um, so hang, you're doing business and politics, but you're in the com- computer science labs. Yeah, yeah. Because did, did you have an early affinity for computers or, or something like I that? I was, yeah, I always used to mess around with computers and, you know, messed around very early on with some fairly rudimentary programming. But was, you know, certainly I think when, when I started to meet people and friends who were actual programmers and actual computer engineers, started to realize, hey... I know a little bit about sort of where we could take this. You know how to actually build the stuff. You know, let's do something cool together. And, and that's actually how I met Sean Blanchfield, who was the, the other co-founder of Demonware, which was our, our first company. Your very first company. Talk to me about the, the beginnings of the beginnings of that. Well, like any good students, we weren't, as I said, going to any lectures. We were, however, spending a lot of time playing Counter-Strike, uh, which right. was an online game, which is still huge today. And, and we realized that because um, we were playing Counter-Strike across the Internet against other people, we realized that this was something that people were enjoying quite a lot. We realized this whole online gaming thing was probably going to get bigger. Um, and we started, we decided to build or start a company that would build the technology to make it easier to create online games. Um, and so Demonware was born, um, and we started that right out of college. Um, Sean left his PhD, um, which is something his mother has still not forgiven me for. Because um, <laughs> he's not a doctor now. He's not, but it kind of worked out all right for him. Yeah, I think he's done okay. Um, so while all the other students were in the busy drinking away in the sunshine in the PAV bar, you guys were in the computer science lab. I mean, was there ever any kind of a, a longing to be in the great outdoors at that point? A longing or? to be normal. Is that what you're basically asking? Yeah, it's, where it's where I'm steering you, yeah. Um, I think that once we started to realize that, that you know, you could actually build companies and, and start to shape a little bit more of your future and you didn't have to go and work for somebody else, we thought we would give that a crack. Um, you know, and I think the internet, you know, this was sort of 2003, 2004. And, you know, we were starting to see, you know, computer games be something that you weren't embarrassed to tell people that you were involved with. Mm. Um, I mean, I think it was it was only when we actually sold the company in 2007 that my mother was um, sort of proud enough to tell people in the village what her son actually did. Because mm. up until that point, it was like, oh, he does something in technology. Something with computers. Yeah, video games were considered still quite embarrassing at that point. Um, so I think that was, that was you know, once we started, I think we kind of got hooked on, on, on that concept of building companies and solving problems and, and, and just creating things. You know? And were the role models back then? I mean, I just try to cast my mind back. 2007 is when you sold it. So it was around the, the, the early noughties when you were, you, were, you were building it. Who were you kind of looking around and hoping to emulate at that stage? I think, you know, it was, it was probably kind of the, the slightly older generation of, of Irish business people and entrepreneurs. So it would have been sort of the likes of, you know, Chris Horn and Iona. I think even though he's, he's basically the same age, you know, Steve Collins was a year or two ahead of us in terms of building Havoc. Um, you know, I think the likes of Dermot Desmond and people like that, who we had just seen sort of rise up like out of Ireland and become international and, and be able to sort of take something that was built in Dublin or created in Ireland and make it bigger, make it more international. And I think we were we were definitely inspired by those guys. But I think we were also cocky enough to believe that, hey, we were we were sort of building our own building our own path, you know, kind of uh, drawing our own maps. So Demonware, helping people uh, play video games against each other across the web. 
Um, what was your kind of eureka moment where you realized this is something that we could actually scale and monetize because you were busy way playing what was it called again Counter-Strike Counter-Strike can't say I was ever into that myself I'm afraid your loss I know Go on then. Um, well, we, I mean, like it was seeing that video games were getting, were obviously getting bigger and bigger. And after we graduated, um, we had, uh, we basically raised some money. So we, we put together a business plan in the days when you actually needed a business plan to raise money um, from a whole variety of investors, from, you know, professional investors to actual sheep farmers. Uh, which was a fascinating journey. Was that going around the neighbours back home? Uh, no, but it was going to other parts um, and literally going and pitching people on their farms, um, you know, to sort of invest in this technology thing. And th- those were some of the most amazing conversations with, frankly, I've got to say, some of the most insightful people. But what sent you in that direction? It's not a, the they, first place most they, people they had think money. of starting. They, they had, had money. money. They had money. In 2003, the venture capital scene in Ireland was sheep embryonic farmers. and essentially <laughs> sheep, sheep farmers, yes. It was sort of part butchery, part, part investment. And, um, you know, so we, we did that and we raised some money. And then we basically got on planes, flew around the world, spoke to all these game studios, convinced these game studios to let these two graduate students from Ireland come and just ask them questions about how they were building games, what they needed, what they found difficult. And eventually, after sort of, you know, doing a lot of those meetings, we sort of had a rough consensus of, OK, here's the thing that, that, that these game developers really need. Were those and we appo- started building it. Were those appointments easy to make? No, they were they were really hard. Um, you know, I remember one particular game studio, which was in, um, uh, it was, wasn't in Alabama. It was in, I can't remember exactly where it was. But we were there for about three days trying to get in the door and trying to get in the door and trying to get in the door. And eventually we got in the door and we sort of, you know, like convinced three or four people that we were related to some, you know, one of the owners or something like that. And we got people in the room and we sort of said, hey, and at this point, like in order to demonstrate what we were doing, we were literally carrying around three laptops with us. So you'd have to hook up the three laptops, connect them to a network and then sort of show the technology interacting with itself. It was the most cumbersome thing you could possibly imagine. Um, but it worked and, and we got, you know, we eventually understood what, what all these game studios wanted. And, and I think more importantly, we figured out how much they were willing to pay for it. Would it so be, we started building. Would it be easier for, you know, a version of you today to get those meetings, do you think? Are people oh, more Christ open to yeah. collaboration? Oh, I mean, it is so much easier now. I mean, not to say that, hey, it's easier for kids today. It still isn't. You've got lots and lots of other challenges. But I think there's, there's a much deeper, bigger ecosystem of writing about starting companies, what it takes, how to raise investment, who to raise investment from. We knew nothing going out, really, you know. And, and we, were, you know, we were good at what we did and we were capable of building and capable of selling. But we didn't have, you know, the, the I suppose the, the, the combined experience we had access to were physically the people we met, as opposed to today where you can read everyone's blog and you can see all of these aggregate experiences everywhere else. So it was definitely a different, a different kind of time. You clearly don't suffer from imposter syndrome. I do not. Um, I've deep down, I've tried to search my soul to see if maybe I should be a little bit more modest. And, and I found <laughs> that the answer is no. Where did you find your confidence from? Um, I have no idea. I've been asked this before. Uh, I think it's sort of always been there. I just essentially unleashed it at some point. And once you once you sort of understand, I suppose, the basic psychology of humans and, and you know, how like how to get people interested, how to tell a story, you know, and, and, and understand that, like, it's, it's not just about sort of trying to sort of batter someone into submission to agree with you. It's get them interested, show them the narrative, show them where this story goes, you know, give them a beginning, give them a middle, give them an end, which sounds very simplistic, but it, it actually really uh, starts to work. And 
I also think once you've gone and, and sort of presented sort of the same thing 200 times, you start to know what works and what doesn't work. Mm. You know, and we were literally pitching, you know, to raise money to survive in the early days of Demonware. Were you promising to do things that you didn't actually know how to do? Um, I would say that was a good 75% of it, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I think, you know, I mean, again, when you're, when you're building companies, you are being optimistic. You are, you are kind of speculating on possible solutions. You are absolutely always wrong. The question is, how wrong are you going to be? And really, I think when you're, from an investment perspective, when you're, when you're looking at any early stage team or any early stage company, it's almost less about the product and less about the market and all about the founders and the management team. Uh, have they got the mental resilience to be able to survive and change when they need to change? Because it is inevitable they will need to change what they're doing. So how do you measure that resilience? What I mean, you're out there kind of investing in other companies now today, aren't you? What do you look for? What are the telltale signs of resilience? I sort of have arguments with people as early as I can, and I tell them they're wrong and they're wrong. And I'm generally a bit of a dick to them um, just to see how they respond. Because, you know, a lot of times when you're building stuff, you are going to be dealing with those types of people. And you've got to be able to pick yourself up and either go back at them or you'd be able to go, you've got to be capable of going back into your team and being optimistic and cheery and happy, even though someone has just kicked you in the balls. And, and, and again, I think that's so it, it's difficult. And, and that's a very blunt and unsophisticated way of testing it. If I had my way, I, I would have some sort of psychometric testing on every single founder that walked in the door. Um, but I really think that is the most important thing. I, I think for early stage investing, you can nearly close your eyes to the product. Just ignore the product completely and just bet on the people. I need to go back to Demonware because I feel like we need to close off that part of your story because there's been so many like individual chapters for you because you are what they call a serial entrepreneur. We're not talking about Kellogg's here. Uh, you, you seem to move from company to company fairly fairly quickly. Um, so, so how long was the, 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 the journey with Demonware? I would say it's, it's probably more a sector thing rather than a company thing specifically, right? Because when we, when we saw the games industry opening up in 2003, it was clear that it was going to get very, very, very big. And I think, you know, after Demonware was acquired in 2007 by Activision, and it became part of Activision's technology, which powered Call of Duty and, and, and everything else since then, um, it, it was clear to us that there were other things to do in the game space. And that was when games were starting to shift from, or the innovation in games was starting to shift from console into social. And the dynamics and paradigm was changing radically from, hey, let's have this ultra-realistic, really hardcore experience to, hey, let's create this, this sort of lightweight, enjoyable game thing that everyone can access on any device around the world. Things like Candy Crush. Things like Candy Crush and even before that, in terms of what Zynga was doing with things like Farmville, which you probably remember. I loved and Farmville. all those oh everyone did, right? Yeah. That was like the thing my that really started. Of, my crops need to be harvested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it was yeah, it was the weirdest thing. Um, but that that was and that was sort of when we started Jolt to really kind of go after that particular um, evolution in games. So it was kind of it, it, it's more a sectoral these days I call it a thesis. Um, back then I wouldn't have called it a thesis mm. um, but it basically is you're sort of looking at different ways to take advantage of, of you know a, a kind of a structural movement in the market and it's, it's the same thing that, that, that got us into the kids space a few years ago but I guess I'm jumping ahead well yeah let's, before we jump into the kids space let's talk a little bit more about Jolt what you did there and what you learned from it so Jolt, we created a games publisher. So we were um, developing games uh, that specifically could be built, uh, could be played in a browser or built in fa or played in Facebook. And the point was to create something that was, you know, accessible by every audience. Um, it ended up being acquired by GameStop, uh, which was the biggest video games retailer, uh, at a point where you know they were discovering that 
you know, there was this thing called the internet mm. and they had to do something about People it. People weren't buying kind of discs with games on them anymore. Yeah. Or certainly less they were starting, so. Exactly. Yeah. They were starting to think about it and, and it was the first acquisition in what turned out to be a series um, from GameStop. Um, and it was really, I suppose, for them, and they would probably acknowledge this, it was it was an experimentation in, in digital and in technology. And we did some pretty cool stuff in there. Um, you know, we, we, we allowed people who were buying physical games to also simultaneously be able to sign up for our browser-based games, which was phenomenally successful. Um, and that was, that was an interesting experience. They were a public company in a very difficult place. Um, you know, they were the most shorted stock in the NASDAQ at one point. So literally, man, imagine running a company when everyone is betting against you. Yeah. And that was essentially and what are you going to do on. to overcome their, their concerns? Right. So how long was that journey, Jolt? Jolt, we started in, wow, 2008, I think. And it got acquired in 2010, if memory serves. And I think uh, I probably stayed in there about a year, year and a half after that, kind of doing the integration and everything else, over which time they acquired three or four other digital companies um, to kind of try and build sort of a cluster with around this sort of notion of that, you know, combining sort of physical retail with, with digital engagement. Are these companies not like your children? Um, well, children have to leave the nest at some point, Tyke. <laughs> and um, ultimately, my role is, is to be able to, you know, create a return for the investors that put money in, for, for the companies where we take on external investment. Yeah, because um, I mean, we've had other people in, in the chair there talking to me about, you know, their companies, which are just so intertwined with everything that there is about their personalities and their skill sets. And it's hard to imagine them ever kind of leaving the reins behind you're quite a different character and you've got quite a different story to tell. Um, is, there, is there any kind of sentimentality behind the, the, you know, the things that you've, you've, you've created? Um, I, I think, yes, at that particular moment when you're building them. You've got to be passionate about them. You've got to be enthused. You've got to care. You've got to give a shit about that company more than anything else in terms of making it work. I, I think probably the best description of me is, is sort of a, a company-building version of a serial monogamist. And, you know, if you can wrap your head around that. <laughs> I'm analogy. trying to get there. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's if you have other people's money, you have a responsibility to give it back. I think a lot of people do, do lose sight of that fact. Um, and I, so I think it's, it's, it's less about sort of the emotion and more, you know, thinking about how are you going to achieve that? I think the, probably the difference is that, like, you know, 10 years ago, you know, for a lot of tech and digital um, startups, the only real way to do that was probably selling the whole thing. I think today, you know, the, the, the capital markets are much more sophisticated. There are different ways of returning liquidity to investors in a way where you don't have to sell the whole company. Um, I think, you know, taking a public listing is maybe more achievable for some companies than it was 10 years ago. So there's, there's different ways of doing it. You've got a lot of successes on your, your CV, as it were. Um, any kind of false starts or uh, dead ends? Um, well, there's sort of the whole professional rap DJ career, which I, which I never managed to, to really make a go of. I mean, at some point... Well, how I'd are you like going to monetize that apart from just becoming an international superstar? That seems like a perfectly viable business model to me. I don't see anything wrong with it whatsoever. So, go on, why don't you indulge us in a little bit of your uh, your rap rhetoric? My rap rhetoric? Well, it's more rap DJ, so I'm behind the dance uh-huh, rather right. than actually creating it. Spinning um, discs. I, I, yeah, I like your efforts to try and get me to freestyle on a mic, but as tempted as I I'm am... I'm not giving up just yet. <laughs> no, I realise that, yeah. Um, but no, that, that, that will never happen. Um, for, for, for good reason because I'm not I am truly a terrible rapper and, and there are many people who will attest to that fact but but rap music is, is something that is that is extremely enjoyable and I fit in wherever I can Do you have to be into rap to fit in in Silicon Valley? 
Um, no, although I think increasingly it helps. I think you're getting you're getting all of these middle aged investors now who sort of grew up with nineties rap and sort of Nas and Wu Tang and Biggie and everything else, and they like to talk about that a lot, and it makes them feel very very cool. But I think going back to your question, I mean. There's a lot of experimentation that we do within the companies. There's a lot of testing and feature testing and trying things. And it's just often it's it's mistake after mistake after mistake and failure after failure after failure. And it's, it's how are you actually learning from that, but within all of the companies. Because really when we're, when we're starting companies, we are trying to pick sectors where even if we make mistakes, the overall trajectory is still up. You know, if you're in a growing market and emerging market, you know, it's it's you want your mistakes to maybe slow you down a bit, but not actually change your trajectory. Mm. I guess it's that kind of age old thing. It's not so much about falling or tripping up. It's how you pick yourself up and yep. get Just, on with life. Again. I mean, you're you're. I think you know when you're building companies, your only rule as as the founder or as the founders is just don't die. Mm. That is the that is the only rule. Uh, it's fascinating stuff so far, uh, Dylan. Do stay with us. Do stay with us indeed. Back at home on the Architects of Business, I'm going to be continuing to talk to Dylan Collins about how he today is trying to make the internet safer for children. You're listening to the Architects of Business brought to you by EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Visit eoy.ie to find out more about the programme and the finalists for this year. Get in touch. Mail us on thearchitectsofbusiness at joe.ie. Dylan, thanks for sticking with us. Um, right now, your uh, efforts are invested in Super Awesome. Why don't you tell us a bit more about what uh, you're doing there? Uh, well, it's certainly the most humblest of companies that I've been involved with over my career. Um, it is a company that we started about five years ago um, to build the technology that was going to really power the, the digital ecosystem for kids. Um, we started to see, you know, uh, three, four, five years ago, more and more children coming online. Um, and it seemed inevitable that there were just going to be huge numbers of kids coming online. Um, and what you know, one of the challenges is that everything that Silicon Valley has built and the internet in general was all designed for us adults. It was simply never designed to deal with seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds. Um, and we saw that there was going to be a lot of new technology needed to actually make that happen. So about five years ago, we, we, we pulled a group of people together and, and started building that technology. So what does that technology look like to people who are using it today? Well, it's very much behind the scenes. So we're sort of like, I suppose, the intel inside of, of the, the, uh, the industry. Um, and it's, it's, it's our technology that, for example, makes sure that children aren't being tracked when they go online, making sure if they see any ads that there's no cookies that are being dropped so their devices aren't being tracked wherever they go, their content isn't being monitored. Um, it provides tools to, to um, developers who are creating, let's say, games for kids or apps for kids that allows them to have more responsibility in, in those experiences. So it, re- it limits the amount of screen time. It gives ways to get parents involved. Um, it's basically a whole suite of tools and tech for companies that are interacting with kids really in, in, in any part of the value chain. But for end users, for parents, as it were, kind of plonking Timmy or Jane down in front of the computer, which, you know, in many ways they probably shouldn't be doing unless they're uh, engaging via something like what sure. Super Awesome does. How does it change the experience for, for, for the kid or how does it instill the confidence in, in the parent that they know they can they can do that? Well, it really depends on, on, on which app it is and which company has created it. So we were a B2B company, so we provide the tools to the companies that are providing, let's say, that, that online video service, you know, to make sure that they can give options to parents, to make sure that, you know, parents have some sort of app that they can log into to see what is their child actually looking at, what are the videos, you know, what, um, what requests, what information requests are being made about the child. It's a new space that's been emerging very, very rapidly, kind of really as, as everyone over the last, only 
over the last two or three years suddenly went, shit, there are children on the internet. We really need to do something about this. We have to protect them from uh, swearing. Well, exactly. Well, yes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but but it, it, it merely um, underlines my passion, Tag. About yes, the, about absolutely. The but it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Like when you look at the numbers, like in, in, um, you know, in the UK today, there's about 2,000 kids that will go online for the very first time today. In the US, about 10,000 children will go online for the first time today. And in China, about 50,000 kids every day going online for the first time. And when you look at those numbers, you kind of go, well, everyone should be investing in, in, in technology to support this level of kids going online. But Silicon Valley has kind of ignored it. And how evolved? I mean, you're saying Silicon Valley's ignored it up until, well, until you came along. But, um, you know, what stage are we at in the evolution of protecting kids online as an industry or indeed in what you're doing? Well, I would say, you know, if you look at sort of Facebook and Google and, and you know, most of their products at this point were built about 10 years ago. So they were never built with children in mind. Their whole approach has been, hey, tick this box and tell us you're over 13. And we're just going to pretend that more or less you don't exist. And that's basically been the approach. Um, up until the last couple of years. Um, and you've seen sort of more and more media coverage about, you know, you know, kids seeing terrible things on YouTube and kids doing terrible things on Facebook. So we've seen the emergence of, of a sector called kid tech, which is really these companies kind of led by Super Awesome, actually building the tools and technology to make it easier to support under 13s and the needs of under 13s and their parents as they're using the internet more. And is it about kind of putting kids, should we say, within within a bubble? on the internet and in that there's only so much they can so many different sites or apps or services they can go to or is it more about actually making sure that the the Facebooks of this world if they wanted to could actually it's, host kids it's, on the it's, it's really it's really about the latter because I mean again kids are kids right they're going to go wherever they want um, but you, again, you look at all of these platforms, none of them were ever designed to even think about kids in the first place. You know, if you were building YouTube again today, you would build it knowing that you were going to have at least 50% of your audience being under 13. You know, and you would think about that and you would make different design decisions. So ultimately, like what you're starting to see emerge now is, is, is kind of a, like a, a two-speed internet. You've kind of got the adult internet and you've got the kids internet. And that's been driven by a lot of new data privacy laws as well. I mean, I guess there's two strings to this story, isn't there? There's the, the, the content. We don't want Timmy or Jane looking at scary stuff or horrible stuff. And then there's the, the data gathering. I mean, just talk about the content, first of all. Did this idea in any way get born out of your work in, in video games? Because there's a lot of video games out there that I wouldn't want my, my kid playing. Sure. Well, first I break the internet and then I go and fix it, right? Um, I mean, yeah, I think I think some of it to a degree, but it was really sort of, I mean, I, I had different investments in different companies a few years ago, and, and a couple of them were in the kids' space, one on the TV side, one in a, in, in a startup. And it just got me looking at, I suppose, the lack of thinking overall that was really being done about kids and digital. And, and you know, initially when we went out and we pitched this company in Silicon Valley to raise finance, um, nobody was interested, no matter how well we told the story. Everyone was like, no, kids aren't really a thing. They're, they're kind of small, you know, the small audience, they don't really matter. They don't have any money, et cetera. And I said, all of that is perfectly true, but look at the graph. There are only more and more and more of them going online, you know, and they're going online from the age of two or three, which means by the time they're 13 and they're officially a person on the internet, they've been there for a decade. You know, so th this is this is going to change everything. Yeah, and when you think about how much effort goes into pr to protecting kids in, in traditional media, you right. know, watersheds on right. television right. and kids' TV channels where they only see kind of like you know yeah. pink clouds and fluffy dinosaurs and right. what have you. Like was, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe, maybe the dinosaurs is the real theme here. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it, it was it was it was a small audience that was considered really difficult to do something about, and I really really like that as a potential opportunity because difficult hard sectors means you're going to have less competition. 
competition. Um, and, and, you know, as a result, we've, we've built a very, very unique company um, with very, very little competition. But it has been a brutal journey in terms of getting there, you know, because it, it, there's, a, you know, there's a lot of challenges in that particular sector. Just explain for me the, the, the data context then, mm. because, you know, lots of consumers, they've been watching the news in the last few years, last few months, I should say, are worried about what Facebook and Google and everyone knows about them and how they're trying to sell them things or how they're trying to manipulate their political beliefs. What's your concern when it comes to kids? Well, the, the basic concern is that kids are using all the same adult platforms. So all the vast amounts of personal data that are being captured on you whenever you're on Facebook or, or YouTube or anywhere else, the same thing is happening to a six-year-old and a seven-year-old. Um, and where is that data going? What is being done with it? Who is it being shared with? How is that child being tracked as they're going around the internet? And everyone is, is kind of going, you know, I think after the Cambridge Analytica thing, they're going, oh, shit, what is happening to my data? And then if their parents or if their uncles or aunts, they're thinking, oh, shit, what is happening to my child's data or to my niece or nephew's data? And they go, that is even more serious. So I, I, th- I think you're seeing the reaction from Cambridge Analytica more being reflected in, in governance around children and digital um, than anywhere else. Well, I, don't, I still don't understand what makes children special though, when it comes to data because, you know, if, if, if you know, Timmy likes going and playing, uh, you know, Barney the Dinosaur games or something like that, how is that any different or more dangerous than them knowing that I like on occasion playing Farmville? Because I can put together um, with all of the data that can be captured on you, I can put together your location, your content preferences, who else you're talking to. I can start to put together an actual profile of who you are as a person. That is not something that that is safe or sensible, mm. you know, for a five-year-old. That profile is then shared with hundreds of companies over the internet. And in general, we're very, very bad at keeping data secure, you know, as a planet. You know, I mean, we've seen sort of all the various leaks that have come out of everything else. So when you think about all of this vast amount of, of data, personal data on children, and it being shared in all sorts of places that you don't even think about, you know, something terrible is going to happen there at some point. You know, and this is why we've, we've new data privacy laws in place. It's why the U.S. put them in place a few years ago. Europe has now followed um, to make sure that personal data cannot be captured on kids um, up to the age of 16 now. What about the rest of us? We've all had those um, emails popping into our inbox in the last few weeks, panicked companies trying to um, ensure we stay on their mailing lists. Um, you know, can the, industry, can the internet as a place in which to do business, can it you know, continue without being able to gather heaps of data? On all of us. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, the, the, the personal profiling thing is a relatively recent phenomenon on the internet. I mean, you, you look at sort of how the internet used to work and it was, you know, when it was advertising driven, it's, it's associating ads with content not with the actual user profile data. So I think, you know, in, in, in 10 years' time, we'll probably look back and we'll go, you know, this was the start of when people started to take their, 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 their personal data privacy seriously. So I think, you know, subscription will become bigger. I think at the end of the day, you know, if you are running a community-based digital business, you know, you want sort of loyal, interested, active users you know, who are going to actually opt in and want to know about what you're telling. And they're going to be more valuable than just sort of spamming 100,000 people. Uh, Let's talk about um, the rest of the tech sector. I have to say now, before we met today, Dylan, I went away and had a look at other interviews you'd done. Uh, And there was one uh, a few years ago, back in 2013, I think it was, and you were asked about what you thought the future of tech was going to be. Are you going to tell me what I said then? You talked about um, Google Glass. That's really one to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How's that worked out? I'm still holding long on that. (laughs) I think they'll come back with it at some point. I think they were just a bit too early. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, Snap tried it with spectacles. um, So it's not just Google thinking about it. Mm. 
Um, what was wrong with it do you think or, well, or was it just that it was too early um, I think well it's look it's hard to know you get the same signals sometimes um, for, for both being too early and just being wrong um, I think their actual design was terrible yeah I, I, I think if you were to give that to Apple and come up with the product it would certainly look better and would have more popularity it looked like Jordy the Forge it Star really Trek. did look like Jordy the Forge which I thought was cool <laughs> but no one else did um, yeah. so I, I, I don't know maybe they were just building it specifically for me um, but I, I, I do think that 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 sort of augmented kind of reality approach to things. I mean, we've seen it with Pokemon Go. You know, I think you are going to see much more augmented tools and technology coming out over the next few years where they're kind of overlaying data and information onto some sort of screen. But at a time when people are so worried about screen time in general, and there's all these apps out there kind of monitoring how much time you're, you know, in inverted commas, wasting staring at your iPhone or your tablet screen, do you think people really want that cast into their eyes, uh, whatever it turns out to be, 12 to 16 hours a day? I think it depends on what it is. I mean, if you put that context, you know, um, in, in some sort of sport, you know, football or wrestling or basketball or something, people people probably do. I think for business people, you know, who want information on, on everything that's going on right now or information about you and, and, and your hobbies so I can have a better conversation mm. with you, I, I guess they probably do. You know, I mean, it's it's we will see. Like, it, it's interesting. I was with a, with a media executive um, a few months ago and he was sort of tracing the history of the distance between the human eye and the screen over the last hundred years. And he sort of said it started out, um, you know, incredibly far away, you know, with the original projectors and the original cinemas. And sort of then it moved to sort of TV in the home, um, you know, and then it moved to sort of uh, desktop, laptop computing. And now it's moving to your phone, which is right up here. And he was very confidently saying, I mean, very confidently saying in the next 15 years, it is going to be in your eye. You know, he was like, you are actually going to have, you know, embedded technology in your eye going straight into your retina. So what, what are you looking at, right? I mean, is it still in that realm of kind of casting things right into your eye? Or is there anything else you're looking at into the future? I think you're portraying me tech. as some sort of a monster. Visionary, I'm tr- I'm an oracle. To, I mean, literally a visionary where I'm trying to put things <laughs> in people's eyes. Um, I think, um, you know, I, th- I think augmented, augmented tech is going to continue. I think that if you look at what Apple have done with their earbuds, you know, that kind of ambient computing, which is really really, really early, it's it's pretty interesting where you kind of have more technology and more processing that are being done off the phone um, but linked back to the phone. Um, so I think you're, you're probably going to end up with sort of processing points probably around the human body, like in your ears, maybe something on your eyes. Someone's going to produce some kind of ring, I'm pretty certain, you know, which will, which will do something. Um, yeah, people will be happy about that. But what about watches, smartwatches? They have really haven't taken off like many people have thought they would. They definitely haven't, but they are like they're, the the growth there is kind of slow and steady. Like Apple's watches is, is still hanging in there, and people are still interested by it. But I think you're right about a lot of this. It's very very early, you know. Mm. And I think I think we will see more. I I think there's there's. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see who the startups coming through are going to be, because I think hardware is such a tough place for early companies. You know, they need so much capital, you know, that you're relying on these big companies to produce innovation, which is typically not what they do well. You know, Apple sort of maybe being the exception. I think security is something, you know, and cybersecurity is, is something that is only going to become a bigger and bigger problem um, or bigger and bigger challenge for everyone in terms of more connected devices and, and, and more ways to, to, to crack things and break things. I think in terms of, of how insurance involves, evolves to deal with all of these new kinds of threats, um, like hacking insurance, um, you know, any of these sort of kind of adjacent uh, insurances to all these new markets, I think that's super interesting. So what about, um, you know, when you're not starting companies and uh, rap DJing, uh, what's what's downtime look like, and how much time do you get to just be just to be Dylan? 
just to be me, mm. just me with my dinosaur bones. Yeah, exactly. Um, the well, it's I, I kind of fly a lot, so I'm often in different cities. So I mean, I'm I'm a food nerd. Well, I'm several different types of nerd, to be clear. But a food nerd is absolutely one of them. So I, I eat in lots of new restaurants and try and hang out with chefs or, or you know just be beside the kitchen and try and be cool with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know a lot of rap music is still my thing. I still do occasionally play mm-hmm. um, if you know where to find me, which is a closely guarded secret. Which I'm not going to reveal here, sorry. Oh, go on. No, no, no. I'll ask you you again. Go Go on, go on, go on. (laughs) Father Ted approach. Yes, well, Um, it worked for Mrs. Doyle. Indeed, yeah. Um, So many similarities between our personalities. (laughs) Um, And uh, other than that, I I, I don't know, I, I... yeah, I, I, I mean, build, well, like I, I really enjoy building companies. It's, it's sort of a thing that I'm, I'm deeply interested in. I read a lot of Charlie Munger, who is the, the slightly lesser known um, partner of, um, of Warren Buffett. Berkshire okay. Hathaway. He is, he is without doubt the smartest man, smartest human being I've ever encountered the in my life. The lesser sung hero. But by far the bigger brain in my view. He's worth, worth, worth reading or YouTubing or whatever. Charlie Munger, just go and Google it and thank me later. But is it possible to have the kind of success that you've had or that Warren Buffett has had or Charlie Munger without making more the kind of sacrifices that most ordinary people wouldn't make in terms of, you know, family life or anything like that? That is a very good question. And I would say it's extremely difficult to do. I, I think building companies and, and doing startups is generally not compatible with, with kind of long-term healthy family lives. I think it's very, very tough. Um, it's a I, dramatic characterization. Uh, yeah, but I think it's correct. You know, I mean, you look, you look at the time, like when you're building a company, you have to make the company the most important thing, right? Which means by definition, you are deprioritizing everything else in your life. You know, so that's sort of partners, that is children, that is families, that's whatever else is there. And I think it's, it's, it's really difficult. I mean, you know, one of the things I always sort of look at when, when, when founders or teams come and pitch me is I sort of ask them about, you know, husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever, you know, tell me about them. Because they're the ones that are actually going to have to sort of lift you and, and, and keep you there. And, you know, they're the ones who are going to suffer a lot um, over this journey. Are they ready for it? And does a lot depend on how supportive they're going to be of the... the yeah, but, but I don't want to make it sound as if it's like it's them being choosing to be supportive or not supportive. Like, to be clear, building companies is a fairly um, unrealistic, difficult, improbable thing to do. You know, you are you are essentially defying physics. You are creating an energy that is not there, right? And that's a really, really, really hard thing to do. And I, and I think it's 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 tough. And and um, I, I think there's probably not enough discussion about like the impact on partners and things like that over time. Um, so yeah, it's dramatic, but I, I think it's real, it's you know real talk. I mean, is communications a bit? You were talking earlier about telling the story. Mm. So is that one of the kind of the key pieces of advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs that they need to be able to tell their own story? You've got to be able to present and get people excited. And I, I think, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what, what college degrees and university degrees are like now, but certainly we did very little actual presenting, you know, when, when we came through. And the difference that makes when you're going into sort of a business environment and you're pitching, you know, to sell a product or to raise money or whatever it is, you know, you want to go and, and it's like, come to me when you have pitched something 500 times or I'll settle for 100. I hear too many people that say, and, and sometimes I default to this as well, you know, um, when they're talking about something that didn't go well, they didn't get it. It's like, okay, fine, but it was your responsibility to deliver it. So it's not they didn't get it, it's you didn't communicate You didn't sell it. And even if it's a really hard thing, it is still on you, the founder, the management team, whatever, to be able to communicate very, very clearly. And it's it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's the mother test. You know, can you explain what you are doing to your mother? 
you know, in a way that she understands. And, and once you can get to that level of simplicity, you have mastered your subject, you know, and only then. Is there such a thing as a complicated success story in business? Every success story is complicated. You just don't hear about it. We deliberately don't tell journalists about all that shit. Um, we just make it sound really easy. Um, like, you know, behind the scenes of every company, like most, you know, almost every, I would say virtually every company, every startup is equidistant between success and failure. They just don't realize it most days. You know, and, and, you know, I've never, ever seen a successful company that hasn't almost died on numerous occasions for various reasons, good, bad or otherwise. And, 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 you know, that gets very, very complicated. You know, founder, co-founders leave. There's lawsuits, lots of things. You just don't hear about it. It's not about the complexity. It's about how you, you tell it as a simple story. It's how it, yeah, but also then um, going back to my earlier point, it's, it's how you deal with it, you know, as a founder and sort of being able to go it's fine, I'm going to internalize this, and now I'm going to turn around and walk into a room of our team and say, hey, everything's great, let's go back up the mountain kind of thing. Yeah. You know, so I, I think you've, you've, you've got a, you know, I, again, that's why it's, it's the mental toughness and the resilience of founders. It's a key thing to everything, you know. And if you're picking a co-founder, you know, you, you need to go and spend enough time with them to understand whether they have that or not. Have you ever felt like quitting? Um, I think there's usually if I haven't slept in long enough, I get, I can, you know, I think anyone can get sort of pretty dark and everything else about the world. But it's, it, you know, again, it's a thing that I think was probably born on the hurling pitch in Mulnahone, where it's just get back up and keep going, you know, and it's, it's, you, you kind of almost beat it into yourself as a mantra, you know, where you just go, because once, once you realize that the, if there's one secret, and I don't think it is, but it's a simple route to success is just don't die, which means just get back up. And once you understand that, you know, and you just keep doing it. Those GAA coaches have uh, a lot of credit to, to take. They, well, they have a lot to answer for one or the other. Yeah. You know? um, so, so going on, on, on past performance, I mean, I have to ask, are you looking to a future now beyond Super Awesome with uh, another project? Super awesome is absolutely where my focus is um, for the long term. Like, if you look at, at what we're doing here, we are literally, you know, building the new internet for kids. We're building an infrastructure that's supporting all these hundreds of thousands of kids going online every day. We're just getting started here. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's a huge challenge to go and fix. And, and I think for a company to be ahead of Facebook, ahead of Google, investing ahead of these companies and actually solving this problem is pretty cool and pretty rare. And to be able to turn around to people that you're hiring or joining the team saying, hey, guess what? We're building something that is beating these Internet giants, but also is doing something good for the fabric of society. We are fixing the Internet a little bit at a time. And That's an amazing thing to be able And to increasingly say. people are starting to, well, to see the, the residents of all that. Um, is there a float coming at some point? point in the not too distant future there have been some rumors that circulated about that tag all right I and they mean, didn't come from you it's it's i have no idea where they came from i mean it was i suppose journalists getting very excited about our story um I mean, I, I think it's, you know, there's there's a lot of different directions that we can take the company. I think certainly, you know, public listing is definitely potentially on the roadmap, um, you know, may, you know, perhaps in a couple of years, uh, something we're, we're certainly not ruling out at this point. But I mean, you know, you say this is your focus right now, but you do have that history of kind of, you know, working hard for investors, putting a, a good company on its feet and then, you know, letting it, it, it fly the nest and do it by itself. So, I mean, can you imagine... How long do you think Super Awesome is going to be uh, in its, shall we say, pubescent stages before it flourishes into adulthood? It's kind of like you asking me, can I settle down? Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I, mean I, I think it's, you know, with, with every company, there's, there's different management teams for different times, you know, in that company's life cycle. 
Um, yeah, and, and we'll certainly evaluate that over over time. But I'm 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 one of, if not I think, the biggest shareholder in the company. Um, so my involvement is going to be there until I think it's it's there's someone better to do the job. We've got a fantastic management team, you know, across um, New York and London, you know, do, who could absolutely run the thing without me if I got hit by a bus. Um, but I, I think it's it's you know it's as much about building the company as it is about you know educating you know in many cases sort of governments and advocacy groups around the world because there's not enough people who have really studied and thought about the impacts of technology on kids. Like in many respects, you know, when when you know Amazon is released. Alexa, you know, um, into the home, it is sort of a half thought through experiment on, you know, allowing AI to interact with four year olds, you know, and I think as a society, we haven't really thought about the long term impacts of that. And I think it's probably helpful for someone to be someone like me to be around the world shouting about this, you know, even just to get to, to stimulate people to think about, it, you know, no better man. Dylan Collins, thank you very much Thanks, for talking to us today. Thanks for joining us today on The Architects of Business, beautifully produced by Patrick Ohi and the rest of the team here at Joe. Thanks to our sponsor, EY, Entrepreneur of the Year. You can go to their website, eoy.ie, to learn more about the programme and the finalists for this year. Don't miss out on future editions by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Republic, and on YouTube. And you can check out Joe's other podcasts too, including The Hard Yards on Rugby, The GA Hour, and our movie show, The Big review ski. Next week, I'll be talking to the guy who went data mining on the rugby pitch. That's Stephen Smith of Kitman Labs. So do join me then. Bye-bye. The Architects of Business on Joe is supported by the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland.